Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Thank you for listening. It's been really interesting over the last few weeks, sort of trying to put together a lot of conflicting and confusing things that are going on. There's been some really interesting stuff written. One of the things that really struck me was there's some commentary about a new book that's coming out in the US by a former guest of the podcast, and that is Anne Helen Peterson. She's written a book with her partner, Charlie Wazell, and that's really about how debating how to some extent, how the idea of workplace culture was a trap to try to engage us to to work harder and care more about our jobs. It paints quite a cynical perspective on the, the way that we're working, almost suggesting that remote work allows us to renegotiate this. So we're just doing tactical blocks of work. And what I think it misses to my mind is that there is something more fundamental that Actually, connecting with the people around us can be part of the reason why work is so enriching and enjoyable. There's something that was in some work by a academic called Zainab Ton a couple of years ago that I'm going to do a, a revisited podcast on it in a couple of weeks. And she studied retail workers. She studied people who work in supermarkets. And what she found was that, you know, look, superficially, we might say, well, you know, this job... It wouldn't be that rewarding. But actually, there was something about the camaraderie. There's something about the, the the fact that they were in service of the customers there that was incredibly rewarding. People would leave at the end of the day feeling happy, satisfied that they'd done a good job. And I, I was really struck with the, the Anne Helen Peterson model that we do these 40 hours of servitude in return for a salary and we give no more of ourselves other than that. I think it misses firstly the idea of motivation and secondly the, the notion that we like feeling kinship we like feeling connected to other people so i was really struck with that separately uh, i don't know if you've watched the beatles get back documentary but there's something joyous about watch it i mean it's it's as close to close circuit camera work as you could possibly get we're, we're literally watching a band who i i can understand the appeal of the beatles you know that for always for me the it's not my thing. I, I, I only uh, fetishize brand new music. I, I can't necessarily get into nostalgia. But, um, but, you know, there's something remarkable about watching them work. And if you watch them work, the best part of it is these moments where they're titting around and doing nothing. These moments where they are, like, knocking out ideas. And these moments where they are laughing and I don't think it's possible to have one without all of the other parts. The fact that their brains are sort of idling at times or that, they're, that they assemble trust by the joking, the downtime. And it, for me, it reminds us that, that actually our relationships with our colleagues are... Um, and nuanced and they're just incredibly rich when we feel a degree of reciprocation when we feel understood by other people when we feel seen by other people one of the challenges that we've got is when we divorce work from those things today's guest is talking specifically about all of those themes she's written this wonderful book that is um 
it really sort of lends itself to the moment we're in. So Norena Hertz is regarded as one of the world's leading thinkers. And, you know, she's been acclaimed by the Observer. She's appeared in Vogue as one of the world's most inspiring women. Uh, she's renowned thought leader. As, she, as she'll describe for you, she's she's also works in business, so she's got a, a board directorship. But she's written this book, which... As I chatted to her beforehand, she must have spent five years preparing, but beautifully, it, she's reassembled it to reflect the, the era of pandemic we're in. But the, the book, The Lonely Century, is all about the trend we are observing towards more people feeling lonely. And it's really, it sort of reminds us why that matters, that, you know, Three in five US adults consider themselves to be lonely. In the UK, 40% of people say that they didn't have a friend at work. In the US, in the in the UK, uh, three out of uh, every five 18 to 34-year-olds say that they they are lonely often or sometimes. Um People, employees who are lonely say that they've never told anyone. And the, these things, I think increasingly matter because what you recognize when you you go through the argument that she broke so brilliantly goes through and rehearses is that the more lonely we are it has an impact on our psyche so the most vivid example she gives is she talks about a mouse that's kept lonely and the first thing that the mouse does when it's freed from its loneliness the longer the lo- loneliness the more violently it embraces a a new mouse in put into its area and this is what we witness. We witness that when people are lonely, they are more attracted to extreme ideas. They are more likely to describe their neighbourhoods as hostile. Uh, she, she shows some research, which is looks at siblings. And the lonelier a sibling, the more likely they are to describe their neighbourhood as violent. Loneliness seems to infect our state of mind. It seems to, to make us less collaborative less less willing to to reach out to other people anyway narina's book really goes through some of the ways that we go from feeling lonely to feeling connected she talks about my tr- social social interactions minimal social interactions where you know just chatting to our barista seems to elevate our happiness or an example that i posted on linkedin last week firefighters who cook together and eat together um not only is their happiness enhanced but their performance on their jobs enhanced so these themes these ideas of uh, companionate affection, companionate love, are uh, ideas I've talked about before. But Norina Hertz's book really sort of goes through specifically the, the challenges for the moment. Now, I was delighted to talk to her because we delve really, really explicitly into how loneliness might be affecting work and actually really direct actions that any of us can take. My view is very clearly that hybrid working has demonstrated its worth but a straight out the box model of hybrid working where we do a certain number of days every week has got the risk of of um proving unsatisfactory and so we're all trying to work out experiments that probably are specific to our teams or our organizations anyway Norena gives us really clear examples not least the importance of eating together and spending time trying to relate to each other brilliant discussion Strongly recommend her book. As ever, I, uh, I've both read it and audio booked it, so uh, I could strongly recommend the, the audio book version if that's your preference. But here is my discussion with Norena Hertz, the author of The Lonely Century. Norena, thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I'm absolutely truly thrilled to have you here, especially after having uh, read your latest book. And I just wonder if you could kick us off by introducing who you are and, and how you describe yourself. I am Norena Hertz. I am an author. I'm an academic. I'm an economist and I'm a board member. I sit on the board of Warner Music Group. So I combine academic interests in economics, business, psychology, politics and society and where they all intersect with real world advisory work, whether it's as a board member or also advising CEOs and prime ministers and presidents across the world on how to make smart decisions and make better strategic choices. Okay, well, that sounds that sounds alluring in itself. That sounds uh, fabulous. Now, listen, the, the, you've written this book, which I think 
It's probably I was ju- I updated my reading list the other day of the the favorite book favorite books I've read of the year and and almost certainly this one sort of earned its place right at the top of that list because I think the the thing that people from the outside might mistake is thinking a book on loneliness might not have an application to them um, and for me actually it's it's so holistic about the challenges facing all of us in our day to day life in work explicitly and in our communities that it extends way beyond loneliness. Um, what, what created the motivation for you to write it? So it was three very different factors all happening at roughly the same time about five years ago now. First, it was my students. So I'd been teaching at university for about 20 years and about five years ago, I realized that more and more students were coming to visit me in my office in office hours, and they were confiding in me that they were feeling lonely and isolated. And this definitely wasn't something I'd seen five years before. The scale of these 19, 20, 21-year-olds coming and telling me they were lonely was really very striking and shocking. And so I thought, what's going on here? Why are all these young people feeling so lonely? The second thing was I was researching in my academic research the rise of right-wing populism across the world. So if leaders like Donald Trump in America, Marine Le Pen in France, Matteo Salvini in Italy, and I wanted to understand why were these politicians so popular amongst so many people? Who were voting for them? And as I started interviewing right-wing populist voters across the world, one thing that kept on coming across from their stories was how lonely they felt and how they were finding community and belonging in these right-wing populist movements. So I thought, okay, loneliness in a very different realm. And then I had bought an Amazon Alexa and I started observing my own interaction with my Alexa. And I realized that I was feeling increasingly affectionate towards this little object that sits in my kitchen, who sometimes, you know, I would chat to when I was just at home on my own. As a writer, I do spend a lot of time on my own, even before the pandemic I did, which got me thinking about what I came to call the loneliness economy. This entire economy made up of goods and services designed to deliver connection and alleviate loneliness that even before the pandemic was really on the rise and which we're going to see accelerate even more, I believe, over the next few years. So it was the fact that the market saw such a demand in products to deliver connection and loneliness, which meant that a lot of people were feeling lonely. The fact that voters were voting on their feelings of loneliness, the fact that my students, a generation we wouldn't have thought of typically as being so lonely or so lonely, was those three very different observations and realizations which made me want to dig into the subjects. And as soon as I did, I realized that we were in the midst of a global loneliness crisis because in America, three in five adults feel lonely always or often. In the UK, one in five millennials say that they don't have a single friend at all, which is really quite disturbing. And at work, 40% of office workers, even before the pandemic, said that they felt lonely. And I thought, you know, I need to dig into the subject. I need to understand what's going on. How did we get here? And then very importantly, what can we do to fix it? Because, you know, my book isn't a depressing kind of story of us being lonely. It's actually a book full of hope mm. and ideas and things that we can do. That, it's the strange thing, isn't it? Because that's why I sort of I give the shout out right at the outset. You know, I, I um, one of my favourite books a couple of years ago was a book about depression, and like it's it could be such a a an off put for anyone thinking, well, I don't want to be seen in the old days reading a book on the tube about depression or having a book about depression on my desk. But it wasn't it was about the you know, the human condition and about actually understanding it gives us an insight into how we can actually live a, a more vivid life. And yours is exactly the same. It's, it's actually about the uh, the strength of community that we have rather than the, all that we can find, rather than uh, loneliness. It's really interesting what you say about uh, populist politics. It, it sort of was one of those moments when I really started scribbling down notes. I just did a lot of work. Uh, I've just written a book and uh, and uh, one, I did a lot of work on QAnon and uh, 
one of those things, I threw a lot of it away in the end because I, I sort of wasn't on task. The really interesting thing about QAnon is that broadly the profile of the people who are drawn to it are isolated people whose lives have been somewhat disappointing. They are easily able, exactly like populists, to have a vivid they that they are against. It's us against a, this sort of very tangible they. And it's got all of those things, exactly as you say, that populist politics have, that it's informed largely by loneliness. It's by people who don't feel like they've got a tribe. But what you hear is really interestingly in the testimonies of the people who go into the QAnon experience, they say, for the first time, I feel like I've got a group I love talking to. We're solving these problems together. You know, the, yes. the, the uh, chat boards are full of community. And it's like, yes. it's a really vivid example of what we get wrong about modern life, that these people found comfort in something that unfortunately was so un horribly toxic. But it's just, it's an interesting reminder, isn't it? That loneliness actually leads directly into these uh, these areas that are really having a societal impact right now. Yeah, for sure. And I, I also looked at um, QAnon and incels. Um, and also, they, they also didn't get into my book either. So we clearly both have a stash <laughs> of research that, for whatever reason, didn't end up in our books. But you're absolutely right. On the furthest extremes, um, we do see lonely, predominantly men, actually, in those cases, um, who are desperately seeking belonging, desperately seeking to be heard, desperately seeking voice, not finding it in traditional life and finding it on these Reddit groups or when I looked at right-wing populists, actually, you know, at Trump rallies, at dinners hosted by Italy's Right Populist League, where they would sit and sing traditional songs. Of course, you know, when we're looking at these more extreme cases, I think two things just for the listener to be aware of. Firstly, I am not saying that everyone lonely goes off and find solace in these populist movements or in the extremes of the internet. That definitely isn't the case. But what we do know is that if you are lonely, you are more likely to see the world as a threatening place. You are more likely to see the world as a hostile place. There was research done with siblings, pairs of siblings, and the researchers looked at the siblings and asked them, how they saw the world. And what they found was that the lonelier of the two saw the world as a more threatening place, even when they were living in the same neighborhood. So I found that really fascinating. And there's also research that I point to in my book about how when a mouse is left in a cage, the longer the mouse is left in the cage, the more it lashes out to a new mouse when the mouse is introduced. So we know that loneliness and isolation is linked to seeing outsiders as threatening. But that, of course, doesn't mean that everyone lonely feels that way. The reason why I, I was so keen to talk to you right now is that we're ov we've obviously gone through this period where we've reimagined work. And to a large extent, you know, the brochure is so appealing. The, the wonders of remote work. I was at a conference a, a month ago where, mm. you know, a, com a conference of chartered accountants and, you know, I was, I was honored to be in their, their company, sort of 200, 300 people. The first event that they'd had in two years, the room was filled with the excited chatter of people finally being back together. But someone stood up and, and asked a question to the chief exec. And, you know, I could really see vividly the societal changes that were going through. And he said, you know, I've got two young kids. This is a guy standing up to the chief exec, probably, you know, we're, we're all, if we've ever had a, a big boss, we've all got a degree of, of self-adaptation. We don't necessarily want to say our most honest things to those people. And he said, I've realized that I've been living through this this sort of cult to some extent, you know, I've been in denial. I haven't been putting my kids down to sleep. You know, now I've gone through the last two years, I've bathed them every night. I've had a meal with them every night and I've done my best work ever. We've had the most successful year. And he said, I'm not going back to the way it was before. And so all of us have seen through, you know, and that guy being an example that I think he's probably uh, born out across the whole country. All of us have seen to some extent that we've been able to renegotiate our relationship between work and, and home life. But as a consequence, we can find ourselves now, right now thinking, well, maybe remote work is the future. And I think what your evidence strongly provides is that absolutely take advantage of some of those things, but don't underestimate the importance of people on, on, ch on changing us, actually, on, on shaping who we are. So I'd just be interested in your perspective on like that, how we've gone into this period and, and what your take on it all is. Well, first, I think different people have had different experiences of 
this past 18 months and working from home. Some people have preferred it. Some people have been grateful not to have their commutes. Some people have had, you know, nice homes where they've been happy to hang out. Um, the man you're talking about in the example is an anomaly because most women ended up doing most of the bathing and childcare. And the data shows very clearly rather than the rather than the men. But good for him that he did that. So we're seeing different stories. Some people liked it and some people really didn't like it. Some people really became much, much lonelier during this period. In fact, overall, when we look at how loneliness increased over the past 18 months, what we see is that on average, loneliness increased very significantly, especially amongst three groups, women, people on low income and the young, so the under 25s. So I think when you think about the workforce, always important to remember different people may have different stories here and different experiences. I think the other thing, and I am really cautious when it comes to companies who are kind of getting very excited about the fact that they can slash their physical footprint, close down their offices and leave everyone to work from home saying, you know, well, we had a really productive year. Why do we need to carry all these overheads. I think this could be a very short-term decision that will come to bite them in the ass at a later date because we know that innovating, problem-solving and creating things together is done far better in person than over Zoom. We know that. The research is really clear on this. But more than that, we know that those serendipitous moments in your day at work when you do bump into someone at the water cooler and have a conversation where you are waiting for the kettle to boil and you have that chat with someone else. Those are moments that punctuate our days in the office that actually contribute to building a kind of social glue in an organization or what economists call social capital, where the relationships between employees actually has value in itself. And we also know as well that lonely employees are really bad for business. We know that lonely employees are less productive, less motivated, more likely to quit a company than a worker who isn't lonely. We know that if you don't have a friend at your job, you're seven times less likely to be engaged at your work than if you do. And we know that it's easier to feel lonely when you're working remotely and harder to develop and strengthen your friendships when you're working remotely. I would be very cautious about a remote only existence. But I think what's important, of course, for organizations to realize is that the workplace wasn't so great before. And that's, I think, a fair criticism that the guy in the audience stood up and kind of made clear. You know, it wasn't great before. 40% of employees, we know office workers were lonely before. We know that people were working, you know, incredibly long hours. And often, if they had a long commute, getting home so late that they couldn't be there for their family or their partner or their friends. So we know that those are real. And as we think about how to redesign the workplace post-pandemic, it's important to take that in mind and important to really think about how do we create workplaces that have a real sense of community, where people have a real sense of belonging, where friendships, real friendships are struck, but also importantly, how do we design the workplace so that people have time to care for others outside of work, whether it's your elderly parents, whether it's your kids, whether it's a friend in need. Some companies are on that care piece, you know, doing pretty well and leading the way. Centrica, for example, they give paid care days for employees where you can take days off to care for anyone who's important in your life. I think that sort of thinking is actually really important mm. now more than ever. It's really interesting though, isn't it? Because it, you, you sort of hinted at it there, but the the um, the satisfaction figures for open plan offices or you know, the, the, the way that we were working before, I think we could rose tint it to some extent. You know, I often think that anyone who is... Uh, standing and suggesting that, you know, there were all these moments of glorious creation. Like sometimes when we hear the, the way that the office is described, it was like this, this, this orgy of creativity that people were pressing ideas into each other's hands. They were hollering over with a new innovation. And, you know, I always think that we should force those people to watch footage of their office back in February 2020 as, as everyone sat slumped at their desks 
and um, you know, there, there was certainly not a lot of creativity happening. And that's the challenge, I think, is that while we might know, we might have remembered really vividly joyous moments of being in the office when something brilliant did happen or something funny happened. You know, we've, we laughed so much more when we were around other people, but knowing that there was a, there was a yin yang to this, that, you know, there were great moments in the office, but also moments where we were tearing across the country to try and get to a desk for a set time because that's the rule that we were given. So th- there is a challenge to this. For sure. And we need to be honest about what wasn't working. And you raised open plan offices. I mean, that is a particular bugbear of mine, having um, really looked into open plan offices at depth in my recent book, uh, you know, designed ostensibly to deliver more connection and collaboration. What researchers at Harvard Business School found, surprisingly, um, not perhaps that surprisingly to anyone who's worked in an open plan office, was that they did the actual opposite and that people actually speak less to their colleagues in an open plan office, speak less face-to-face and communicate more by email or by messaging than when they're not in an open plan office, which is really quite something. And I've worked in open plan offices. I was one of those people who would come in, put my noise cancelling headphones on so that I could concentrate. But that's obviously a sign to everyone else, stay away, not come and engage and chat. And then there's always that feeling that you can't really have an authentic conversation with anyone around you because essentially everyone else is listening in. So it all becomes quite performative and shallow. And the depth of connection, I think, in open plan offices is necessarily quite weak. You know, so when we think about how do we create a greater sense of belonging and connection in the workplace? You know, we do need to think really from the design of our spaces, and that definitely plays a part, to how we treat each other and, of course, what we do together. Because feeling that you belong, feeling that you're part of a community is about feeling seen, it's about feeling appreciated, it's about feeling valued, it's about feeling cared for. And of course, it's about feeling that you have friends connected to others and employers moving forward. If they want to retain the best talent and now, you know, I'm sure you've been talking about this already on your podcast, but you know, we're now in this era where a lot of employers are finding it increasingly hard to hire the best talent and retain the best talent. So in this era, really creating a sense of meaningful belonging and connection at work is a winning strategy. And as you know, my book's full of ideas on what we can do. And some of them, some of them are really easy, like encouraging staff to eat together. And that's one, when you say it, it sounds, oh yeah, that that might make sense. I love this research that I found from researchers in Chicago who studied companies of firefighters and what they found that companies of firefighters who ate together didn't only feel much more bonded to each other, but they also performed twice as well. And I also wrote in my book about how in the army, the moving away from dining rooms where people would all eat together to a kind of pay-as-you-go, dine-alone type system is creating less of a sense of camaraderie in the army. And actually, recently, I was quite honoured that a serving army officer kind of wrote a very thoughtful piece about my book, a review of my book, really confirming from his perspective and then looking at the comments on it from other serving people in the army, you know, where they really felt that something as simple as no longer eating together was having such a profound impact on a sense of team, kinship, bonding and camaraderie. So that's that's just a very, very small thing organizations can do, but having breaks together at the same time, that also um, works wonders volunteering together, doing things with your colleagues in common cause, you know, another great way of helping connect, but much, much more that can be done as well. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say about eating together, because I remember looking at the the interventions that Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool manager, did when he first went to Liverpool. The first one was that he introduced it, he lined everyone up and he introduced everyone. He said, we all use first names here. But the second one, he said, we eat together every day. I didn't know that. I'm not a particular football fan, but even for somebody who's, you know, pretty agnostic football-wise, 
Klopp is seems like a really amazing manager. So mm. so that's great to know that he does that as well. My husband's actually a Liverpool fan, so he will be yes. very happy to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> it's really interesting. It's like um I've I've got a fascination with sort of social identity theory and, and Klopp constantly talks about we need to move from me to we. And it's like he, he just embodies a real understanding of actually we're stronger when we're a collective. It's like he, he couldn't be a I don't know if he studied these things or he's just got a, a visceral understanding of it, but like he's uh, he's such a, a great role model for for these things. It's really interesting that you talk about from me to we, because one of the reasons we are so lonely today is that really ever since the 1980s, we've become increasingly me, I focused. And we even see it in pop songs where words such as we, us and our have steadily been supplanted since the 1980s by words like I, me, myself. So, I don't know, we are the champions, Queen versus I am God, Kanye West. Part of what we need to do collectively as a society, but also, of course, in the workplace, absolutely is move away from that I focus to the we focus. And part of the reason it's so hard in most organisations to do that is because you're not often valued enough on the we part, on what you do to help others, on how kind you are, on how collaborative you are. You're normally rewarded on what you yourself achieve. Some companies are actually doing something about this, like Cisco, the global tech company, because they have a scheme and I absolutely love this scheme. They have a scheme whereby anyone in the company, from the receptionist to the most senior manager, can nominate anyone else who's been particularly helpful or kind or collaborative. And that person gets a reward of between $100 to $10,000 if they've done something incredibly amazing. This is a company really saying, we value these qualities and we really value them. We're actually putting our money where our mouth is. And turnover at Cisco is half the industry average. And they've been voted the best company in the world to work for, for the fifth year running. So I think this thing about how do organizations more explicitly value collaboration, cooperation, kindness, helping each other, you know, these are questions organizations should be asking themselves if they want to succeed moving forward for sure. I wonder if you've got a perspective of one of the challenges when you're in an organisation is that there's a degree of depersonalisation in the organisation because there's too many colleagues. So one of the challenges that I think that we've um, we've encountered is that we've we've used the phrases that you've talked about there. You know, like we we optimise for collaboration, we optimise for keeping everyone in the loop. We need to communicate better, but then we've created so many relationships of dependency that people can find themselves spending all day either on video calls with people they don't recognize or looking at a sea of names where there's cameras turned off or getting emails from people they don't know. And we've, We've told people very clearly that actually, you know, you need to, um, the company is optimized for more communication, more collaboration, and yet we've dropped them into an environment that's overwhelming. And it seems from the stuff that you've done, when we can actually relate to individuals, when we can feel mirror neurons triggering from recognition, from understanding, from from people seeing us, I think you used the phrase be seen, um, that's when the really good stuff happens. But we've often exposed them to something that's far too depersonalized than that. They're in these fast teams. They they go to open plan floors mm-hmm. and they don't know anyone. Um, and, and I just wonder if it actually these, these some of the ways that we've configured work that are not even allowing some of the systems that you've talked about there to activate effectively. Mm. Uh, that's, you know, I think that is a great point. Um, that kind of anonymity in the workplace, mm. which then makes it, you know, how are you really going to have a relationship with someone because you don't know them? And of course, back to open plan offices and hot desks, especially. And if you don't even have somewhere to put a photo or put a plant, how on earth will anyone even have any sense of you when they see you sitting there? Again, some companies are trying to do something about this using technology, actually, some of them to try and address this. There is a startup who has got an app. It's an app where you put your interests and then you're matched up with other people who've got your interests. So let's say you are a football fan and you love Liverpool. I mean, there might be other people on the floor who love Liverpool. There might be other people on the next floor. There may be somebody in accounts and somebody in marketing and somebody in finance who has an 
absolute shared passion with you, but you never knew. So this is a way of matching people in an organization along interests. So, you know, maybe football, it may be baking, it may be Love Island, whatever. I really like that idea. I like the idea of creating communities of interest in the workplace so that we actually kind of know each other more. I think I think that is important. I think that is an important part of it. And then back to Zoom. Yeah, I mean, group meetings on Zoom when everyone is the size of a postage stamp and even worse when somebody's presenting. So all you see is, you know, the PowerPoint, which is often in such tiny font that there's no way you can read it anyway, is definitely a very dispiriting experience. And it feels very far away from collaboration or knowing people in the room. And I think the other thing about the problem with only remote interactions, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't now have some, because, you know, partly from an environmental footprint point of view, it's a good idea. But also, you know, there were probably some meetings that we didn't need to do in person. But part of the problem with Zoom meetings is that they are much more transactional. That small talk that, oh, you know, what did you do this weekend? How's your kid? Any good movies to recommend? Those kind of conversations, you can't really, it's very hard to do them on Zoom, especially if it's a group call, because then you can't have a side private conversation really. So, and we need that stuff. We need that stuff to humanize the workplace. We need that stuff so that you can develop friendships in the workplace and feel and feel more connected to each other. There's, there's something you talk about that, um, that really struck me and it was how these micro interactions go to create a lot, go a long way to towards forging who we are. And the specific example I'll give you, I did some work with just a, a brilliant doctor from uh, the Whittington hospital and, and, um, and she invited me along to a session in the summer, which was a really interesting session because their experience, she works in the emergency department there, the A&E department, <clears throat> and they're experiencing an unprecedented amount of violence and abuse off the charts. And in fact, they'd brought in some aviation staff to train them. So they were like, well, you know, people who are uh, run the aisles on planes have to deal with abuse and they've got no sanctions, they've got no power, so they have to use the power of persuasion. So I sat in there and witnessed it. It was amazing to watch it. But I was really struck with they were trying to understand why people were more abusive now than they were before. And I think to some extent you've hit upon the answer that, you know, we... And I just wonder if you could explain just how mm. the... Seeing... um watching the reactions of people and reciprocating it and seeing the response of people seems to in some way remind us that we are a human ourselves. So I think um, two things following on from what, you, from what you just said. First of all, I do talk in the book about the importance of micro connections, that chat with your postman as you walk out your house in the morning, that 30 second conversation with a barista in a cafe, these moments that punctuate or punctuated our lives, they actually play a really big part in helping us feel more connected, less alone, and more connected to people around us more generally. So really, really important to keep doing them and to consciously do them. You know, ever since I started researching my book, I'm much more conscious and mindful about doing it. And I used to sometimes be in such a rush and be racing off and really not stop and take that pause. But now I really consciously say hello to the person walking their dog and take that time to have that little chat with my postman, Alan, because it matters. It makes you feel better. So I think that's one really important point. I think the other point that you raised, which relates perhaps to the um, to your observations in the emergency rooms, is a function of this shift to what we might think of as a more contactless existence that has been accelerated through the pandemic. So even before the pandemic, we were starting to order our groceries online rather than go to a supermarket. People were starting to do their exercise classes, Zoom yoga with Adrienne, rather than go to a yoga class or spinning on a Peloton bike rather than go to a spin group. People were obviously ordering their food on delivery or Uber Eats rather than going to restaurants. But the pandemic really massively accelerated this trend. And why this matters is not only because we then lose and are deprived of these micro interactions, which really make a big difference in how lonely we feel, but also because it's in those 
face-to-face in-person interactions that we practice the skills that underpin inclusive democracy, reciprocity, civility, thinking about others and not only ourselves. It's when we're in the grocery store or the supermarket and we see the old lady reaching for a jar and we stop to help her that we're thinking about someone else and not only ourselves. It's when we're in the yoga studio and we think where to put our mat and think we don't want a downward dog in someone else's face. Those are moments when we're thinking about other people and not only ourselves. And I think part of the problem and why we're seeing a rise in abusive and aggressive behavior through the pandemic is not only are people much more stressed than they were, on average, of course they are, but also because we haven't been practicing as much that reciprocity, that civility, that thinking about others, that ongoing in-person interactions with others forces us to. Just my fear is, Bruce, and this is like a really big fear, is that in our um, quest for ever greater convenience and ever more frictionless experiences, we will unwittingly forsake and forego connection, community, and in the process undermine these important building blocks that we need to practice that underpin inclusive democracy. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, I can like really vividly see that through the lens of this emergency ward at the hospital. I can I can see that, you know, their first hand exposure, they're like we can't see this getting better anytime soon. And of course, you know, maybe we've been through this remarkable one-off period. You speak in the book about periods of loneliness have an enduring effect on us. So, but maybe, maybe we'll be blessed. Maybe that, you know, we, we exit this and we do return to a degree of civility. But for anyone listening to this who maybe is more interested in micro issues of specifically their organization, and maybe they're like, okay, so look, you know, I used to love it when my work was a fun place to work. You know, I'm embarrassed to admit I used to love it when we laughed together. I'm embarrassed to admit when, you know, when there was a sense that whether we were going to the pub or going to a restaurant together, we felt a genuine togetherness. I think through all of the things you articulate, we can see if we're not careful, those things that made work, that made the passage of time that we need to spend to earn money, they made them endurable. They made them, they made them enjoyable. You know, we, we kind of felt, well, it's, you know, at times, if you had a good job, like, oh, well, I earn my money from that. But you know what? I just love being around those people. What a wonderful group of people. There are moments where we get genuine fulfillment um, from it. And I wonder if, if we're not careful, based on the elimination of micro-interactions, micro um, that, that strips one layer off. And then we find that we're depersonalizing our colleagues because our work has become increasingly tacti- tactical. I've got this specific thing done and I've typed it into a document and look, I'm done. I've done my part. Um, and I just wonder if all of these things that seem in themselves to be a, a way for us in, to embrace technology in aggregate won't create a version of work that is cementing in all of these elements of loneliness that unfortunately are going to make life poorer and and like make life just less enjoyable for all of us to live uh, I, I don't know if there's a question there but just you know is it to, to your mind, are there just these micro steps? And I guess then thinking specifically, if someone is listening to this thinking, right, okay, I think actually there's a point of difference here for my organization. We can do something that even if the world goes in that direction, we can make sure that this feels like a rich, rewarding experience. From hearing what you say, some of that should be the time you're together, have a meal together. The time you're together... And be present really with each other. At Warner Music right. Group, for example, one thing that they were doing before the pandemic when people were coming into the office was they started a policy where in meetings people would put their mobile phones in a basket so that people were actually looking at each other, connecting with each other, present with each other. So part of it is, of course, we you know, our phones, you know, where our heads are in our phones. So when we're at work, we're often not even engaging properly with each other, let alone at home where we're sitting on the sofa next to our partner or our kids around us and not engaging with them. I think this is about being present with each other, putting your phones down at work as well, so that you have moments when you are properly together, doing things with your colleagues, committing to a culture of gratitude at work and actually valuing kindness and helpfulness and collaboration in a meaningful way, in a financial way. And also thinking, how can you help 
the people you're managing and leading co-create and have a greater voice themselves. You know, this is going to be especially important for your younger hires who really are a generation of creators and makers and want to have agency. So how can you give them voice, help them feel seen? If you deliver on all those fronts, I think your workplace will have a greater sense of belonging, a greater sense of community. Your employees will feel lonelier and they'll be performing far better. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. For me, it's like there's a massive opportunity. I, uh, the reason why your book is a very optimistic book, actually, you know, because it gives really clear things that any of us can do um, in service of us creating a better world. And, and to my mind now, it's a bit like there's a lane on the motorway that's open. Um, you know, we can all get dazzled with discussions about the metaverse and, you know, we can buy the, the, the sales manual that says, Hey, listen, you know, you've enjoyed working in your tracksuit at home the last year and a half. Well, now you can put VR goggles on and see Jerry and, and everyone else from the office. You can see them in 3d and it's a, it's a total mistake. It's a, it's a total red herring to my mind, but we can believe the glamour of it. And in contrast, someone who says, okay, look, yeah, we're not going to be together five days a week, but the days we are together, like you say, present, we're going to create something experiential. This uh, to, to me, there's a human need that can be served by that. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not a Luddite. I'm excited at the potential that technology has to really help us at work as well. I attended my first gig on Roblox as an avatar a few weeks ago. Was it the same as going to a real world gig? No. Did I enjoy it? Not particularly, you know, well, because I missed, you know, people standing beside me and hearing them sing alongside me. And I missed being physically around people. But I'm open minded to the fact that, you know, a generation who grow up gaming, who grow up on Fortnite, who grow up on Roblox might be able to find community in this sort of kind of more virtual world in a way that in a way that I am not. So I am open to that. But I definitely don't think it can be a replacement for face-to-face, in-person interactions. Maybe in addition to, maybe for some people, maybe on occasion, maybe a way to interact with somebody you already have a relationship with. And actually, when I speak to kids about gaming and the connections they have on gaming. One thing that's really obvious is that it's typically with people they already know, that they already have relationships in the real world with, that they're just, you know, using gaming as another way to interact. So if we use the metaverse in that way, if we use technology to help us match up in our companies with people with the same interests, if we use technology so that, yes, maybe we have got a colleague in a faraway place or another country who we like and we can connect with more using te- thanks to technology, well, that's all great. 
But don't let's get rid of, ditch, diminish relationships. And let's not depersonalize our interactions because work would be a much poorer experience if we did, as would life. <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, I couldn't recommend the, the book more wholeheartedly. Tell me, since you've published the book, what's the response you've had from people? And, and uh, has there been anything that you wish you could have added as a result? I've just been absolutely overwhelmed by the response. It's been, you know, so many people have got in touch and said, you know, that they're actually behaving differently as a result. They're thinking about others in different ways. They're doing things differently. They're applying the ideas, which is such an amazing feeling. And I think the other really exciting thing is how this book is taking off all over the world. So not only here in the UK, it's currently on the bestseller list in South Korea and Spain. And so it's wonderful to see. And it also speaks, I think, to just the universality of the human condition, that we are creatures of togetherness. We are hardwired to connect. And whatever we can do to best realize that is going to make us happier and healthier too. What an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much, Noreena. I'm, I'm so immensely grateful for, for this timely moment for us to look at your work in the context of, of our workplaces and our jobs. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Noreena. I'm very grateful for her coming to join me on the uh, on the podcast. Sort of really brilliant discussion. I don't feel I've fully captured all of the wonders of it. And because I took such copious notes, if you are interested in this, if you go to the podcast page on the website, you'll see all of the notes I took actually. And, you know, why that's mattered matters because I linked to some of the research that she uh, she detailed and I just go through some of the stats that she's got. So if you felt like you got some of this but didn't get all of it, you'll see my notes there. And like I say, I could strongly recommend her book to you. Always welcome people getting in touch and uh, and sort of sharing their thoughts, really. If you liked this, please do share it or please do sign up to the website. I've been Bruce Daisley. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.